had an interesting experience with, uh, I mean, I don't even know what the interview questions are about. So maybe I should save this for the thing, but a really interesting experience, like a microcosm experience at my practice that mirrored. I'm already recording. So perfect. Yeah. So we're good. Okay. No, I had this microcosm experience um, at my practice, which mirrored what it feels like to live in Utah with the religious culture. As you know, I run a religious trauma process group and I got permission from the clinical director to make a poster. And so I was like, cool, I'm going to make a bigger poster. And he's like, that sounds great. So I made this poster. It wasn't huge. It was like, but it was, I mean, it was like 16 by 24. Right. And I put it up in the lobby and the next day I get this text from him and he's like, so, um, nothing big, but we need to talk. Just give me a call. So I'm like, uh, nothing big to you. Maybe I don't know what this is going to be. So I call him and he's like, Hey, so when I went to the office, I was like, Oh, that's, that might offend people that walk into the office that are religious and they won't come here anymore. Right. And I was like, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, hold on. My clinical director has never been LDS, um, moved here from like New Jersey or something like seven years ago. And so he, but he has a lot of like LDS and non-LDS clients. And so he recognizes that like, this is a deal. I mean, obviously he was like, yes, run this religious trauma group. So we had peer supervision slash staff meeting later on that day. And so I actually brought it up in, in there and was like, I just want you to know that I'm feeling a lot of transference right now because my entire life, Um, my worth came from being a member of this religion within my family. And so now that I've left and I've gone on and done a whole shit ton of stuff since leaving, none of those things actually matter to my family, like my mom, my believing family members, right? And so like professionally, none of the stuff I've done really, really matters because I love the church. And so... (laughs) I was telling them, I'm like, so I'm feeling a lot of transference. Like I need my practice to be a safe space and not a space where I come in and am questioned about like my motives, my professional ability to make good choices. Right. And so we had a really good conversation and it ended up being logistically like fine. So I made a smaller poster, which was interesting because it was like, Annalisa, you're too big. You got to be smaller. Right. I (laughs) fucking hate that. And I was like, "Mm." so I talked about like, Hey, I'm tired of having to deal with like the white male LDS privilege in this state. So it was interesting in the meeting, the people that had either never been LDS or were still LDS were like, we don't understand why this is a big deal. It's just a little bit too big of a poster. Oh, going back to logistics, we're actually now going to have a community resource board and we're going to put all kinds of stuff up there that we should have been doing anyway. So not just my group, but there's another group that runs there and we're going to put some stuff up just for people in the area so that it can represent a myriad of things. I'm even like making some brochures that I'm going to go pick up at Office Max later today that I finished yesterday for the group so people can take them, right? But it was really interesting because the people in the meeting that did not speak up. Later, we actually had like a meeting in my office and all of them were ex-LDS. And every single one of them were like, we were so triggered. We couldn't even come to your defense. Everyone was like, what? And then uh, one of the uh, one of the counselors who's ex-Catholic ex, um, actually, so we have ex-Catholic and then three ex-Mormons plus myself in the practice. And then three individuals that are either never LDS or are still LDS. The ex-Catholic did manage to say one thing in the meeting and I love her for it because the director was like, well, what if some of your clients come in and see this poster and like, we're not going to get therapy here anymore. And they were like, first of all, I would love for them to come into my office and be like, I was really offended by that poster. And let's talk about it. Like, let's actually bring this into this space. Right. You know, and, and plus we have like a waiting list. It's not like people are not waiting to get in for mental health. So it was interesting. I actually did receive five text messages and like three emails from the clinical director in him recognizing his like white male privilege in this space. So, so that part went really well. Like I said, logistically, it's fine, but it was really interesting for me to recognize that, I was feeling so triggered that I yet again, yet again, in the space that's supposed to be like supporting me and helping me and whatever. I have a lot of LDS clients walk through my door. And I said to the clinical director, I can hold space for anyone that walks through my door if my practice holds space for me. And right now I feel like you guys aren't. Of course, people that aren't LDS or excuse me, that have never been LDS or are still LDS are like, we don't understand why this is such a big deal. And so then I was like, you guys are freaking therapists. I don't need to explain to you how trauma works. I don't need to explain to you that this situation mirrored like a situation in my own life. I published a study in a prestigious journal. My mother refused to read it. 
My mother lives seven minutes away from my practice and she refuses to come into my office and see it because I'm no longer LAS. I no longer have value in that, in that regard. It was just really an interesting thing that I'm obviously still kind of trying to process, but I think it got a really good conversation going at the practice. It also made me recognize that I will not always be at this practice and that I'm literally going to go out and once I get all of my licensure stuff done, open up a space that works specifically, you're going to love this list, works specifically with queer individuals, DID, and religious trauma. Those are the three things that I am the most passionate about, like professionally. (laughs) So that was my, so that was my last week. Today, I have with me someone who has been part of my life and my community since 1992. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's crazy. Actually met the very first day of our sophomore year of high school and in Utah where we went to high school. The Even though ninth grade counts for high school credits, it is part of the junior high school. I say that because many of my listeners live in different areas where we live out here. High school is my... Right. Wealth because all the credits go together. So the school is all together. And in Utah, they're starting to change that too. So yeah, like now the ninth grade is at the high school. At the high school. When we went back in the early nineties, my friends, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Utah high school, the first day of high school was considered the first day of your sophomore year of 10th grade. And we met in the morning, bright and early, because for some reason you and I didn't get the memo. That early morning seminary, which is a religious class that is outside of the school program, but you can get school credit for in Utah. I think it just counts as elective, but it's just release time. We still got grades, man. I know, but I don't know if they counted towards graduation, but maybe they did. I don't know. I don't know either. (laughs) It was the early morning seminary class. Yep. What it was called. And it was for... Um, the Mormon church. It's really funny because since I have been, since I have left the Mormon religion and since I have left Utah, you have to actually explain to people. So I'm going to take a second really quick to explain (laughs) to people that this is what is considered the Brighamite sect of the Mormon religion. Now they will call themselves mainstream Mormon, Mm -hmm. not fundamentalist Mormon, regardless of the fact that it is a very fundamentalist religion. It's very orthodox in the way that they do the belief. It's a high demand religion Mm -hmm. and um, sometimes gets classified as a cult. And I'm just going to leave that where it is. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also going to put in the show notes and in this thing, a caveat that this conversation is one that if you are currently living in quote LDS, which is Latter-day Saint, they call themselves, they, they'll get on you and tell you uh, we're members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is their full name title. The reason they were called Mormons for so long is because they believe in a book called the Book of Mormon. And also, while I was a teenager and into my early adulthood, they paid millions of dollars in public relations money and advertising around embracing the name Mormon, which now their current leader tells them not to do. And I'm just going to, again, leave that where it is. Yep. (laughs) So, but I will put a note that if someone is not comfortable with what could feel critical towards the religion, that this may not be an episode for them. Right. So, and the reason behind that is Annalisa, um, part of, we connected because we took this seminary religious class together and we were also in drama together. Which was a much uh, better experience. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And we had English together as well that year. So we had a couple classes together and then also we have both left this religion now. Yeah. And as adults, when we reconnected as adults through Facebook and different things, we had reconnected when we were both still kind of in. And then we connected on a much deeper level where we stay in better contact and things now since we have both left because it's really important to have that kind of support network and things. And since we reconnected, you went back to school. Yes. (laughs) And tell me, Annalie, so what do you Mm. do now? Yes. So I went back to grad school and got my master's degree in clinical mental health counseling, specifically to work with religious trauma, the queer community, and also dissociative identity disorder. So, and I think it's um, really important that we take a moment and talk about the fact that the queer community is not accepted inside of the Mormon church. 
Correct. And as a matter of fact, the suicide rate of LGBTQ youth in Utah is the highest in the nation. There's a lot of distress considering uh, around that population here in Utah. Right. Now, I know when Proposition, when Prop 8, which was a California yes. proposition, came out and they were trying to ban gay marriage. Same, yeah, same-sex marriage. Yep. Same-sex marriage. They were trying to ban that. The Mormon church spent a lot of money and time investing in that. And that right there was the the end of my ability to turn a blind eye to things that were uncomfortable for me in the Mormon church. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, that was the beginning of my journey. And I'm so thankful that I felt the dissonance at a level that caused me to really, truly question everything at that point in time. Because as you know, but our listeners are just beginning to understand and know, I have a queer child. Right. My child is on a journey and we have been through many different labels and things and currently are landing under the trans umbrella. Uh, Rory, who was born a female, goes by he, him pronouns currently and goes by Rory instead of the name that we chose as a gift at birth. It has been a really beautiful journey that would not have been safe and felt so beautiful had I stayed inside of the Mormon space. Yeah. Yep. And you have children that fall under the queer umbrella. I do. Um, Yeah, I have two kids. Um, My oldest is cisgender and lesbian and my youngest is non-binary. They were born AFAB, which stands for assigned female at birth. And they are also bisexual. They are currently going by they, he. We are looking into, and they're 18. We're looking at once they graduate, getting them top surgery as soon as possible, not bottom surgery, which is why transgender is it's, it's an umbrella, right? So your child and my child are experiencing their transgenderness very differently, but also there's some similarities. Right. Um, but I have never seen them so happy. They went to prom two weeks ago um, and we bought them a suit. And we it, did a suit for prom this year too. Nice, nice. It was expensive though. And I was like, you can never grow. Right. <laughs> like $200 for a suit, man. I was like, okay. This is it. But they were so like they walked out of the dressing room just beaming. Right. And I was like, if I needed confirmation, which I did not, but if I needed it, there it was again. Like it keeps coming back into that space. Yeah. And being queer here in Utah is very difficult. I did my internship at the Utah Pride Center um, and my practicum. I'm now in private practice, but I did it there. And um, a lot of the work that we did there was suicide prevention for youth. And a lot of the work we did there was educating parents about what to do with their queer individual as if they were something they should be doing about it. Right. Right. But because of the culture, even the people who are not staunch LDS, it's like, we don't feel safe with our children being out and about because of this culture. Right. And that is something that I know a lot of people that are members of this religious sect, this, you know, that I grew up in that are loving and caring. Like I was Mm -hmm. where I felt like we should hold space for this. But when I recognized that it didn't matter how much space I as an individual held, that the organization itself was never going to fully embrace or accept these people or give them permission to love who they love and just be who they are, because they'll say, oh, we accept them. Right. But the caveat is that if they truly want to be fully integrated into the culture and the religious practices, they cannot act out is what they call it. Right. They cannot act on there. Right. Well, and it's even more, it's a little, I mean, both are insidious, but it's interesting because um, with sexuality, they've been a little more um, understanding like, okay, we we no longer ascribe to it being a choice. This is new. I want to point out. This, this is, is new. new. This is very new. This like is in the last five years, I would say. Some, yeah, something like yeah. that. It's it's fairly new. And it was interesting because I think a lot of it came from pressure of people in the church going, I love my child and I'm going to choose my child over the church. And they were like, right. oh, no, we're losing. We're losing too many people. Right. Um, but they still are. And we'll see. It'll be interesting to see if and if and when this changes in the future. But they are still absolutely not holding space for transgender individuals. So no. 
Yeah. So they are like, no, you are the gender you were born as, which is confusing when I've talked to people about intersex individuals who you may not know, listeners may not know, intersex are individuals who are born with biological components from both sexes or some kind of combination there within, like actual uh, parts missing or additional parts, stuff like that. Also, so what gender are they? I who know knows? growing up, because we're, we're children of the 80s and the early 90s as far as our public education, right? Right. And when we were growing up, we were told that it's either there's two possible choices as far as our DNA and um, chromosomes. Right. All of this about the XY. I don't even XY, XX, XX is female XY. Right. So um, like that, that has never been true. No. And it's interesting now, because when you look at the science, it's like, oh, wait, there's like multiple genetic components when it comes to biological sex, which, Mm -hmm. by the way, is very different than gender. So that's that's a whole nother thing. Um, But even saying like, oh, we now need to make allowances if we're going to go off the biological thing, which is stupid because gender is a social construct anyway. There's more than meets the eye. So I think that the church is struggling with um, knowing what to do with this information. And of course they are because they are, in my opinion, not of God. And so therefore they are having to kind of fit their narrative into this new information and it doesn't go well for them. Right. And I see a lot of religions on this same journey right now. Mm-hmm. I see, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm, I live out in North Carolina. There isn't one predominant religion out here. There are multiple, it still tends to be very Christian based. Right. Right. But where I live, where, you know, in the Charlotte Metro area, it's been fascinating to me that I don't, have conversations around religion that come up very often. Mm. And it's, there's two things behind that. One is I think there's so many people that have been moving away from the, their religious backgrounds. I think there's a, there's a huge movement in that direction where people are looking for what is, and this comes back to what the whole topic of my podcast is, is about living an intentional life with authenticity, community and connection. Yeah. And And there are people who are saying, wait a minute, if there's not space for everyone, I don't want to be in this space. And I think that there's a huge movement happening in that way. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of religions that are going through this. And so I think that on the one hand, there's, there's that, but then there's also the other group that I feel like they all just assume that everyone's Christian because we are right on the edge of the Bible belt. Okay. And so there's an yeah. assumption that everyone's just Christian. Right. Right. So it, it's kind of a combination of the two. And it, and we're still in a space, a lot of don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. You know, like, See, in Utah is interesting because it's like, everyone's Mormon and we assume it. And if you're not, then that is distressing to individuals, right? Versus the don't it. ask, don't tell. It's like, oh, wait, I'm telling you I'm Mormon. And of course you are. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, Fun times. times. (laughs) Yeah. So I've been working a lot on just, so um, my kids are queer. Um, I, I am also queer, but in a a way that may, maybe many people not, may not be aware of. Um, So I'm straight and cisgender, but I'm polyamorous. So I have multiple partners, multiple intimate romantic partners. So that's been a whole part of my journey. I actually left the church after I lost my youngest son. He lived four days. Um, I had a lot of questions about um, where he was and and the church did not a great job in answering those questions and allowed me enough of, of a space to be able to start opening the door um, and really looking at what was behind the curtain. And um, I actually was on this journey, reading a lot of books, doing a lot of kind of soul searching, thinking I would eventually return to the church. So I would have find these answers. I was actually very diligent about it. So those of you that aren't LDS, and but I'm, you may have heard uh, there's this underwear we wear. It's called they're called garments, and um, you may have heard of them as magical underwear, whatever. But basically, they're they're underwear that you wear the first time you go through the temple, which is this whole other thing. Um, and um, they're supposed to keep you safe. Um, but when you're in the temple, you make a covenant, right, or a promise to God both ways that if you wear your garments, He will protect you. Blah blah blah. And if you are doing anything in your life that's sinful or whatever, then you aren't worthy to wear them. And so 
when I was questioning, I actually took them off in respect of them versus like, you know, who cares about these things? And it was interesting though, because when I told my mom, she told me that I couldn't find the truth without wearing my garments. Um, there was a whole thing with that. And I, I even find told- the truth without blind obedience. I know. Right. I know. So Sorry. bizarre. I get a little snarky sometimes. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, but I was planning on putting them back on. I even right. got like, so I was called to be Relief Society president, which is pretty much the highest step you can go as a female in the LDS church without a stake calling, um, which, which is, is outside of your regional yeah. leadership role. Try Just right. trying to like make the vocabulary work for people who don't understand. Yes, exactly. And, and I do this all the time. I wrote a religious group. I'm like, yep. clarify anything that yeah. is not... You know, and my religious trauma group that I run is not just for ex LDS. I've had all kinds of Christian religions right. participate in it as well from like all over the country. But I digress. I got called to be a Relief Society president, and I told the bishop, who is basically the father of the the ward, which is the smallest unit, right. that I wasn't wearing my garments. And he was like, "That's okay. We're still going to call you to be Relief Society president," which shocks a lot of believing Mormons. But also, you have to recognize that I. I live in an area that doesn't have the best socioeconomic status. And so they were just desperate for people to fill callings <laughs> because in the LDS church, I don't know if Celeste has clarified this or not, you, there's no paid clergy. And so on the every, local level, on the local level, on the upper level, they are they give rolling us in the dough. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's all a volunteer clergy basis on the local level. Um, and so it's, it's actually taught as like, this is a huge blessing for you to get a calling and, and whatnot. But what actually happens in reality is a lot of unqualified people end up giving marriage advice or like really awful things and interviewing children about their sexual practices. I mean, it's just lovely. But yeah, I said, okay. But I made kind of a deal with God. I was like, okay, if this church is true, this is like, I'm Relief Society president. I'm I'm questioning things. This is, this is the time, right? Give me those answers because I have dedicated my entire life. And I've made every single choice in my life based on this religion. Here we go. And let me tell you, I was a badass Relief Society president. But um, by the end of kind of everything, I was like, I don't, I don't think this is it. I actually listened to a bunch of podcasts, which were really helpful. And I went and told my husband and he said, you know what, I'll find the answers for you, which is a very misogynistic white man thing for him to say. And he's apologized to we, me since. It's how we grew up. <laughs> it, it's built yep. into the religion that we grew up in, right? Right. And so I was like, okay. Right. But in the back of my mind, I was like, well, I don't know if this marriage is going to last. If right. <laughs> In that moment. Um, yeah. Which, um, let's clarify really quick, because yeah. you stated that you're polyamorous and there's a lot of people that are not going to understand that mm. you are in a committed marriage. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, and consensually, everybody knows what's happening right. in this space. Um, interestingly enough, though, I didn't even discover I was really polyamorous until about a year after both my husband and myself had even left the church. Well, yeah. Lot of, sure. There's no right, space but, for that in Mormonism. No. Well, and a lot of, although a lot of believing members were like, oh, that's why you left the church so that you could participate in this activity. And I was I'm like, oh my, my God, that had nothing to do with why I left the church. Right. What are you talking about? Like, it's so funny. My husband doesn't even drink alcohol. He does drink coffee though. I'm, I'm all about alcohol and coffee, but he's like, no, nope. like, it's just really funny. It has nothing to do with his beliefs. He just right. feels like alcohol is not interesting. So about six months after him, like looking for these answers, he comes to me and he goes, okay, so I also have uh, not found the things and I found some disturbing things and I'm out too. And so he left about six months after I did. That's probably about 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, so, and he's, and it was, it was amazing because the two of us finally were like, okay, let's now question everything we have Ember. decided about our life. Right. And decide if we actually even want to be with each other and do we love each other? And we do. And we're lucky yeah. because I know of many people who have gotten divorced because the church right. is like, this, these are things you need to look for in a spouse. Not necessarily compatibility in the bedroom is certainly not one of them because... <laughs> You're not allowed to have sex before marriage. So there's that. That was my kind of leaving. And then after leaving, that's when I really started going, I want to help other individuals who didn't have that clinical support, right? So it's interesting yeah. for me that in Utah, I am the only individual who is running a religious trauma group. There's a lot of ex-Mormon like, you know, alcohol party groups, which is a good place to start. But um, a lot of people get stuck 
in the I'm an ex-Mormon and I just want to be a person who has raised LDS instead of like having my identity associated with a religion that I no longer believe in. Um, and so that's a lot of what my work is, like helping people live their life now, helping them connect to the world, helping them be able to see value in other things and other spaces and holding that space for them. So for me, my marriage is a thousand times better because we now actually know each other. Whereas I do not think we did when we were members of the church. Well, not only that, how old were you when you got married? Let's talk about that for a second. I was 22. Um, baby. Yeah. Although old for LDS standards. Well, like, a little. I was yeah. like, I know. I'm less like, ah, you were old. I was for a Mormon chick. Yeah. I was 22. Brain doesn't even develop till like 24 or 25. Right. right. It's not <laughs> yeah, exactly. See, and that's what I always said. I'm not getting married till I'm at least 25. And I, I didn't, yeah. I was 26 when I got married. So. so there you go. So there you go. No, it's interesting. And, and it's funny because my husband actually, Celeste knows they went to school together as well. Like, so we went to high school together, although we didn't really date in high school. I was better friends with your husband, Mickey. And mm-hmm. I was with you in high school and mm-hmm. actually yep. fun factoid here for everyone. Um, there's a thing called the Mormon mission. I'm sure you've heard of the Mormon missionaries. That's usually people's. Yeah. Like if you ever seen book of Mormon musical. Yeah. Or like a the, mission the, story. the two boys walking around with the name tags or the two yep. girls walking around with the name tags. Those are the Mormon missionaries. Most everybody's yep. heard of them. Yep. I served a Mormon mission and Mickey, Annalise's husband served a Mormon mission in the same mission. Now we were not in we both went to South Korea. We were not there at the same time, although our right. missions overlapped. I was in the training center in Provo, Utah, while he right. was doing his last couple of months. He came home. We probably crossed each other over the ocean kind of thing, right? Right. And I remember getting the letter that he sent me because, you know, it was it was letters back then. Right. <laughs> but I remember getting yeah. the letter he sent me when he told me that he was engaged to you. And I was like, what? I know it's because you don't really hang out that much in high school. No, we didn't. You were like Mm -mm. on the peripheral of each other's groups. Yep. We did go to like, I think I took a Nemorp, which is probably backwards. Oh Yeah. yeah. We did. We did do that. Um, I know because I have a picture of it. Right. um, (laughs) So that's how I know. Well, Mickey didn't date exclusively because oh. he was a good LDS boy. And so he just dated girls and took them out on dates, but never right. date. He did have one girlfriend, but also he's admitted that that was also because he was trying to convert her to the LDS church. She was Baptist. Which I is went out funny. on dates with Mickey, but it was yeah. like the way we dated was like friends hanging out in a group, really. Right. There was no like intimacy. It wasn't romantic. I never I didn't even kiss anyone until I was 19. Right. That's not your story. (laughs) No, Uh, no, it was not. (laughs) But I, that was, I, I, well, part of it is because I, here's the thing. I repent. I repented. So it's wiped away. (laughs) So it's fine. It's fine. Also, maybe I didn't repent as much as some of the, so this is how this is here. I, uh, so I fooled around a little bit, never like had full on sex in high school, but I fooled around a little bit, but that was like a big no, no. Right. Um, and so like with my boyfriends at the time, cause I dated like exclusively like individuals and with one of my boyfriends, I remember like we fool around and then I'm like, Oh shit, we need to go. Well, I didn't say shit. I'd say, Oh man, darn. <laughs> oh, darn. We're going to hell. We're going to heck. Just kidding. Um, so we need to repent. And I like made my boyfriends go like confess to the bishop and I like never did. Um, so that's kind of awful. <laughs> and they'd that's be like, okay, funny. now I can't take the sacrament. And I was like, oh, but at least Darn. now we're okay. I was like, you repented enough for both of us. It's fine. <laughs> that's funny. Well, I'll tell you yeah. when I, so when you, when we start taking um, and putting this idea that there is a person who has a straight line to God based on your worthiness. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the leader of your congregation. In this case, we call, the Mormons, we call it a bishop, right? I know that when I kind of was a little older, like I said, I didn't get married until I was 26. And I would make out with guys and cross into second 
first base, whatever. I don't right. even know I what mean, the that's base all is. That's all we called. did too, but still, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I would sit, go to then the worthiness interview where they ask you, are you obeying the law of chastity, blah, blah, blah. I remember my thinking was, since he has this direct line to God, if I've gone further than I should have, he's going to know. Yeah, right. Yes. And it, so because that's what they know. to me then I'm okay. Right. Right. Now I look back and I just think it's all hilarious. Right. Yeah. But if Mm -hmm. I was truly going based on what a Mormon believes would be crossing the line, I, I crossed the line. Well, and we had to do a lot of kind of that holding space, like a cognitive dissonance. We had to do a lot of holding space for like two things at the same time, because we were teenagers trying to figure out our place in the world, you know, and and mental health wasn't something that was really addressed, right? So, like, I didn't know I had ADHD till much later in my life. Trauma wasn't addressed. I mean, it was just all kinds of stuff that we just kind of had to figure it out. Without, in my case, and, and in your case, but right. it's not true for everyone, but in our cases, like, we didn't have parents that we could go to and have these conversations Correct. in a safe way. Right. And so it was just, it was interesting because we were supposed to, like, go go to our ecclesiastical, I can't ever say that word, right? ecclesiastical, thank you, leaders for anything that our parents couldn't like handle. They were supposed to be like, if your parents were sinning or your parents were doing things they weren't supposed to be doing, then you went to your church leader. And that was also troublesome because for me, especially they were so much there was so much going on in my personal life that I wasn't allowed to talk about right. um, for bigger reasons, political reasons that I just at a young age kind of was like, well, I'm just going to tell them what they need to hear to keep me on the path. And then I will eventually get, grow up and be a person that can be righteous. But right now I'm just trying to survive. And there was a lot of um, cognitive dissonance, at least for me in that space. Let me ask you this. Do you feel yeah. that now you live an intentional life? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Authenticity is a big, is my word for this year. Um, nice. Well, and probably the rest of my life, honestly. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you read this on Facebook or not, Celeste, but I, I, I kind of wrote a manifesto a couple of months ago on Facebook. Facebook where it was like, listen, these are the things that I enjoy. This is who I am. These are the things that I am not expecting anybody else to hold, I mean, to be, um, but this is me and you can either take it or leave it. And if you can't take it, then fuck you because I'm done apologizing for who I am. And it's just felt so good to be able to say, I don't have to hide in the shadows anymore about who I am. Um, and also it's, been really great because you're not the only one that's kind of reached out to me, but I've had other people be like, Hey, I just want to let you know, thank you for the, your, your vulnerability. Right. And for me, it's, I know some people I'm not, are not very public. I'm very public. Um, because I think growing up for me, I did not see my situation out in the world. Right. And so I am now like, this is who I am and what I'm going through. And especially now as a mom, like, I'm like, yeah, I, sometimes this really sucks. This is difficult. And so being able to say to my kids, this is sucky. It's been really great because I had my oldest tell me a couple of years ago after we disclosed that I'm polyamorous and that's what this means, blah, 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 blah. And um, my oldest was like, the best thing about you being so honest and open to me, mom, is that like now I have absolutely no fears of coming to you with anything. And for me, that was probably the biggest compliment I could receive as a mom, you know, that my oldest has come with me to me with all kinds of things that I would have been terrified to go to my parents about. So along these lines, what exactly does authenticity look like to you then? Mm, Yeah. So no apologies for who I am, but also sticking to my values. So I'm going to tell you a story that happened, uh, I don't know, maybe about a month ago. So my mother, in case you didn't gather, is is still very much a member of this, uh, of the LDS church. She got remarried to an individual who is also a member of the church. So my stepfather, before they were married, um, he and his wife who has, who had passed, um, had this resort up in the mountains here in Utah. And every year for Memorial Day, they would have the kids come up. And so when they got married, that then included her kids. And by the way, they got married after I was already an adult, but still like my kids and my brother's kids and, and everybody would be included in this, this excursion up to, up to this resort. 
And once I left the church and started drinking, I would bring up one or two beers and enjoy them because I'm an adult and that is fine. This year we were, they were talking, my mom comes to me and she's talking about like the arrangements. Um, There's a, a whole bunch of logistics to work out. And she goes, I just need you to know that my husband's children came to me and told me they were uncomfortable with you drinking alcohol. Therefore, you're not allowed to bring up alcohol to this resort. So I said, I, mom, I respect that, right? <laughs> so also I'm not allowed, which is fine, to bring alcohol into her home. It's her home. I respect that. Right. But this resort is a public place that is... Uh, with other people there drinking. With other people there drinking. They even sell alcohol at the little like restaurant they have up there, right? And I said, so I'm going to be true to myself, right? I'm going to say, I'm not apologizing for the fact that I drink because there is nothing that has happened. I'm not an irresponsible consumer of alcohol. Nobody has been harmed. Nobody on their side of the family has been harmed by this. Um, I got a little louder than normal, but honestly, I probably would have been that loud without the alcohol. Let's be honest. (laughs) Right. And so, and I don't even know if we actually came from these children, if it was just my mother's way of like presenting it to me. And I'm not going to question her about that, that there's no value in that, but being able to say, then if that if that is the case, I am not going to come up. I'm going to, we'll, I'll, we'll do something else on Memorial Day because it's not worth fighting. But also I didn't like feel hurt. And so I was able to also say, listen, mom, like here are the things that I need you to know about me. And here's the things I'm no longer going to be apologetic about. I'm not going to apologize about drinking. I'm not, I'm just not. I'm not going to apologize about being a good mother and because my mother's concerned about that as well, right? And so for me, being authentic is about saying, okay, so if a space no longer fits me, I'm going to leave that space. This space is not safe for me. And if they miss me in that space, then they know why I'm not participating in that space, right? right? They're not going to be like, I wonder why Annalisa doesn't come up to Memorial Day anymore. Part of the authenticity is letting the people know in your life what it is is that is acceptable, right? So boundaries, I'm not going to be like, mom, I'm coming up and I'm bringing that beer, right? That's, that's, I mean, part of me wants to do that, but I'm like, that's not going to be helpful to anybody. And and then being able to, you know, say, okay, here's all also the things about myself that I recognize, right? So I mentioned briefly, I have ADHD. And so part of me being authentic is saying, yeah, I do. And I have to manage my life in ways that um, looks a little chaotic to other people, but I'm not going to apologize for it anymore. I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm sorry. I was a little late or whatever. I'm going to be like, I'm doing the best job that I possibly can. And then just like opening up space for for other people to make mistakes and to be okay with that. All of these things, I no longer have to fit into like a box of what a successful female looks like and more of just like, this is me. And whether I'm successful or not depends on if I'm sticking to my values. And I feel like I am now sticking to my values um, unapologetically. Yeah. Would you mind sharing what you deem to be your values? So like I said, I'm polyamorous. Yeah. So um, I function really well with multiple relationships and we, uh, communication is a huge thing. That's about a value for me. You know, people, I want people to know that they can come to me in any type of situation and I can hold space for them. Something new I've been working on with values is recognizing ways that I behave that may not be helpful to those individuals around me. So I do this with my couples and couples counseling where we identify, and I'm going to use the word triggers and stressors. So triggers are more like physiological responses and like what happened to me in that meeting. And stresses are more like things that like, okay, every time we go to my mom's, I feel stressed. And so being able to discover the stressors and triggers of my family members and them to discover mine allows us as a family unit to look out for each other. Like we're going into this space that always causes mom stress. We're going into this space that always causes my husband stress. So knowing this is going to happen, we say, okay, we have to participate in this thing, or this is something that's happened. How can we check in on each other? And so that's been kind of a new thing, a value. So when we say, when I say I value my family, 
What I mean by that is I value creating space for them and them creating space for me so that we are like have an armor around us to protect us from what's happening out in the world. And part of that is recognizing those things out in the world that cause us distress. Um, So that's one of my values. I think for me, one of my values is uh, sexual positivity. So I'm a big proponent of understanding the relationship to my body, allowing space for people to be able to explore those things that they may not understand and to be able to say, you know, in the LDS church, especially we were taught that bodies are shameful and they, and sex is only for procreation. And so part of my values is being able to kind of normalize and destigmatize some of the um, sexual purity culture, right. That exists in the world because there's just no, there's just no point in it. I'm a very sexual person. I always have been, we kind of touched on that a little bit. And so um, being able to, to recognize what's appropriate and what's positive about sexual spaces. So I do a lot of work with um, individuals when it comes to sex positivity. And so helping people recognize it's humanizing and that it is a shared experience that is different for everyone and, and just holding space for those things. And then a value of mine is education and, and really like looking at the research and following the tracks and holding space for different opinions and, and being able to change my mind if I get new information that doesn't match with what I had thought before and not going into conversations with like, I am 100% right, like going into conversations to say, I don't Oh, I, I think this, what do you guys think? What have we seen? Like, I enjoy reading papers. I enjoy just kind of seeing what's out there. And it used to be that I wanted to land somewhere. And now I don't. I, I like the concept of deconstructing and reconstructing ideas in my life, but also recognizing that what I reconstruct today, I might deconstruct tomorrow. Right. So it's this constant like journey of discovery. And that has been so much more fulfilling than me to be like, oh, I know all the answers. I know what's happening, Um, which I know can be very scary for a lot of people. I honestly think that's why religion was created in the first place is to answer these questions that we just don't know the answers to. And because of existential crisis and anxiety, people are like, well, we need to know, and then we can live our lives. But I'd say, no, for me, my value is to go, I'm going to embrace this anxiety. It's telling me that there's something else I need to pay attention to, listen to, provide space for, and be like, oh, I get to be involved in this space the rest of my life. Um, I have a client who's in her 60s and she she's never been to therapy. And she was telling me that the reason that she came to therapy is because she's raised all her kids they're retired. And she's like, I just sit at home all day. Right. And she's like, I don't know how to live beyond these little things that I was told to do as a woman. And so we've been exploring like traveling or reading or going back to school. And and it's been really interesting watching her realize that her whole life, she was like, once I get to this point, I'll be happy. Um, And recognizing that happiness is a trap. It's just an emotion. And so like, we have to constantly be going up and down day to day in our emotions and all of them are valuable um, and that they're telling us things. They're telling us needs that are negative emotions or needs that aren't being met. And so instead of trying to get rid of them, pay attention and say, okay, what about this negative emotion? Do I need to pay attention to? What do I need to explore? What do I need to try doing? What do I need to face that I haven't faced before? And it's allowed me to just kind of open up my world. So now I can enjoy things that are just kind of out there waiting. Celeste, I think like you, the way that you were living your life going and traveling about absolutely like is the epitome of that idea, but bigger and put into use, you know? And so it's exciting to to do that. Yes, exactly. You know, and all the people you've been able to meet. You know, one of one of my big values in life is curiosity and the value Mm -hmm. of curiosity. Like I love showing up like this in a conversation with curiosity, like share Mm -hmm. what you have to share with me, because I know that every single person I meet has something that I'm going to walk away with going, wow. Right. Right. And honestly, that's been the biggest benefit of being a counselor um, on my end is just Well, first of all, I did online grad school, which means all the members of my cohort were from different places all over the United States. 
which was amazing. I'm so glad I did it that way. And now that like everyone that walks in my office, like I get to know them on a very personal level. And what it's done for me though, is it's, it's made me recognize that everybody in the world is somebody that has a really interesting story that I can't assume. And so uh, that's been really fun getting to like ask questions and, and without those assumptions of what a person is based on that first moment of meeting them. And the same with me, right? So for me being often authentic, it's funny because I totally claim the like basic white girl bitch, um, like stereotype in some ways, like I love pumpkin spice, right? Um, but also I'm like, I enjoy things that people go, oh, that's weird. And I, and I, and I'm like, you know what? I don't care that you think it's weird anymore. And I think that that for me is, is one of those big differences. I don't care that I'm, I, I don't care that I love pumpkin spice. I don't care that I love playing role-playing games, video games. Like I get to do what I want to do. And it doesn't matter what that looks like. Then really interesting as a mother, because my oldest child has intrusive thoughts, OCD as well. And part of her OCD is well, her OCD is focused around harming others. She's afraid she's going to harm others. And so her entire life, everything she has done or paid attention to, she needed validation from mom to know that the stuff she liked was good enough. Because yes. And so it's been interesting trying to be like, hey, we can both hold different opinions about something. Like, I don't have to love this the way you love it. And you don't have to love this the way I love it. But we still can respect it without being degrading or belittling to each other in that space. And also something that I love about myself that's only happened maybe in the past like five years is saying, okay, that does not look interesting to me at all, but I have not given it a chance. So I'm going to give it a chance. I'm going to give it a real chance without, even though my brain's like, you're going to find this really stupid. This is how I have fallen in love with anime (laughs) because I did not watch any anime until about five years ago. And my kids were all into it. And I was like, I don't know. And especially being raised like LDS anime was not good. Um, And so for me, I was like, oh, I mean, and there's some bad anime out there too, right? But now like we, my kids introduced me to something that I truly enjoy. And um, I introduce them to things. And sometimes I have to recognize that it hurts my feelings, that they don't like the same things I like, but that it's okay. And that is okay, you know, and, and that they have the space to say, yeah, this isn't my thing. Yeah. Yeah, I love this. Um, What, what do you do in life to build community and connection? Mm. So something that I've been doing is re-establishing the relationships I already had had, right? So giving them new purpose, new understanding, reframing, So when you say building community, it's, and I do meet new people all the time, but a lot for me was like individuals that I wanted to get to know again, that I already had had relationships with before, but they were based on the old me and not the new me and not the new them. Right. And so like with you and I, like getting together and being able to establish relationships with people from my past, I've reached out a lot and been like, Hey, how are you? What's going on? What's happening in your life right now? How are you doing? Right. And genuinely really being um, interested in that has been something that I've really enjoyed also with family members, like getting to know my family members again and through a different lens has been, has been important. Um, but then outside of, of reconnecting with people that I already know is a, showing up for things that other people need people to show up for. For example, one of my coworkers at co-counselors at the Pride Center, um, I've left the Pride Center. She's left the Pride Center and she's starting her own business and she's starting these classes called the Rainbow Community Classes or something like that. I can't remember exactly. But anyway, they had this launch party at this bar and um, she invited everyone from the Pride Center to come and participate in this launch party for her new business. And um, I'm the only person that showed up from the Pride Center. And she was just like, thank you for coming so much. And I'm like, absolutely, because I would want someone to show up. So showing up for individuals when they need that support, I think is a really good way of building community because not only will hopefully they show up for you and they may not, and that's okay, but it gives us an opportunity to actually support people in the way that they need that support. And then another way that um, is very important to me is, is making my home a safe space for my children's friends. So um, my youngest friend's a D&D group. It's now 
up to five individuals out of those five, plus my child. So there's six people participating, two are transgender, everyone's queer except one person. And that one person um, is actually LDS. And um, it was really interesting yesterday because they had the D&D and it was the first time that this LDS individual had participated. And I was I was listening to the conversation with a different ear because I wanted to make sure that the transgender individuals still 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 felt safe in that space, Um, but also recognizing that the LDS kid also needed to feel safe safe. in that space. And so establishing I just kind of hovered a little bit more than I usually do just to kind of ensure that everybody was being respectful of those different spaces. And so for me, being a person that can just pay attention to all those spaces and say, you know, is anyone in this space that's not, that's feeling uncomfortable? I am an extrovert to the max. I rarely feel uncomfortable in a social space, but I know a lot of people do. And so it's interesting because growing up as an extrovert, it was like, I need to be the center of attention and everyone else can just go fuck themselves. And that's just kind of how it was. Right. But now as an adult, I'm like, how can I use my extroversion to create community? Oh, I can be a conduit for people to maybe meet each other or to create a space where everybody's needs are being met. Yeah. Which so that's is it. fascinating <laughs> to me that you and I were friends in high school where <laughs> both of us had a need in a way that we protected ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we both had a need to be very much the center of attention and center yep. of, but I also think that's probably part of why we didn't become best friends in high school. Oh, absolutely. I didn't, I wasn't very good friends at all with females in high school. I was friends with the guys, females. I felt, and I've talked to you about this before, like females for me have, have always been a bit difficult um, to be friends with because I always felt so competitive with them. And then I also like had had experiences where other females had blamed me for things that really they were jealous of. Like, um, and so I was like, you guys aren't to be trusted. Like the whole, like the whole thing, the whole thing. sex was not to be trusted <laughs> the whole thing, but yeah, but it's interesting when we talk about, and so now I'm like, no, okay. So I've now recognized, I can now open up my mouth and say, Hey, what's going on between us? Like right now, when you talk about like, protecting ourselves by becoming the center of attention. I think that's really poignant because I think, especially working with traumatized people, some individuals will become bigger than life um, because that way they can always be tracked. And so for me, it was like, if I'm bigger than life, someone's always going to be aware of what I'm doing, what's happening in the, in this space for me. And so nothing really bad can happen because a lot of people have eyes on me. And for me, it was, I don't have to go deep with anyone if I'm surfaced with everyone. Right. Right. And see, and, and I did have surface with a lot, but I had some really deep connections with guys not with girls, which is interesting considering the fact that I had had some experiences as a young child. I had sexual, I was actually sexually assaulted by a, a boy when I was young, he was like 14 or something. And, um, but for me, men were safer than women because I had, and this is going to sound awful. And I know this, but I had enough sexual appeal that I could use it to protect myself by eliciting kind of a control over guys at that time, because I knew that I could get them to do what I wanted them to do to protect me. And women, I had no, I had no um, idea how to get women into my corner. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes so much sense. See, and my reaction to my sexual assault was all men on some level are evil and horrible. And the part of that comes comes from the Mormon teachings where they tell girls, you know, what you wear influences the way a guy thinks. So if you're wearing clothing that causes him to think dirty thoughts, that's you. Like just the (laughs) the fact that they say cause, right? Like boys will be boys. They're going to think the way they're going to think. It's your job to help protect them from their natural man and all of that. So my interpretation of that then was all men are evil. Right. And I I cannot get closer than a certain level with any of them before somebody is going to right um, utilize, you know, and, and it's interesting because anytime I would get start getting into kind of a physical type relationship with a guy, first of all, my nightmares and stuff would start up. I had PTSD. Wasn't right. Yes. Yes. Able to clarify that until years down the road. Right. right. Yes. But 
as soon as they like wanted to hold hands or be more huggy or whatever, I was emotionally completely done with them. I was able to shut that off. And it's not Mm. something that most people understood or because I didn't, I was just like, I don't know. I just don't like them anymore. Like I was just done. Yeah. You're like, what's the point? You know, well, yeah, my girlfriends, because I wasn't having any kind of a physical reaction or, you know, connection like romantically because I'm very heterosexual, Yep. you know, and I used to say, God, my life would be so much easier if I could just be a lesbian. Right. (laughs) I used to wish there were times when I prayed, please just let me be a lesbian. Not that there wouldn't have been a whole other journey with that. Right. I was like, well, (laughs) I really, really wish that I could be attracted to women, which is why when I heard someone, it was Jimmy Kimmel when he was talking about, you know, well, so when did you choose to be heterosexual? And I was like, well, if I could make a choice, I'd be a lesbian. So obviously it's not about choice. Right. You know, so So obviously it's not right. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, that's really interesting because for me, like I also bought that narrative Yeah. that I somehow controlled men by like what I wore, but for me, it was like, good empowering because right? then I can get it was empowering and versus for you it was like oh they're gonna like attack me or whatever right. so for me it was like I gotta take this power back even though clearly like I'm causing them to do this way but that means that there is that means you have the power I have the power and and for you it's interesting to be like I, that means I have no power the only and way it's not I like I power was to be like no I decide how limited your access is Right, right. And, and like, I recognize now, like looking back the way that some of those relationships I had with men were awful. And I've apologized to everyone that I can remember having like that kind of relationship with, honestly, because that is also part of my journey, like being authentic is, is saying, I recognize that these things that I did or the way that I was back then was, was not right. And I, you know, yeah, it wasn't healthy. And I really, I go back to Brene Brown when she says, you know, do you, and it was her therapist that asked her, right. But she says, do you truly believe that people are doing the best they can with what they have? Right. And I espouse that. I believe that people show up with what they can, you know, and and maybe Mm -hmm. that makes me unrealistic on some levels, but it seemed, I would rather assume that people are doing the best they can in that moment. And trying to hold space yeah. for that than to just assume everybody's yeah. an asshole. <laughs> right. And then, and what's nice about that is then you can also forgive yourself. Yeah. Because you, you didn't did. have the understanding at that point in time. Yeah. And I was trying to fit everything in the narrative of what I had been taught. Right. Um, and, and for me, that was inauthentic, but right. I didn't know it at the time. Right? right. Yeah. There's two things I love to ask each of my guests. And one is if there's a book like that's a for life book that you would recommend to people. The happiness trap. Okay. Just read it. <laughs> Just read it. The other question is what is something that you're either reading or listening to right now that you would recommend for the listeners of this podcast? Mm, there's a book called the art of craving that I am reading right now. I know both of these books aren't very fun, although I find them fun, but I'm a research nerd. It's not a diet book. It talks about like how our bodies have evolved to not be very good at discerning how many calories are in our food because we've artificially made things sweet, but our bodies use sweetness to dictate how many calories are going to be taken in and how it's like messed up our metabolism and stuff. And so it's just a really interesting read and it's helped me feel a lot better about the food that I eat and that I don't have to be on some crazy fad diet to be happy. And so that's something that I really liked about it is it's just like, here's Here's something that nobody has really considered and here's some, a lot of research to back it up. So the art of craving is the other one. Yep. Are you wanting me to connect you with people on social media? Right now, if people want to reach out on Facebook, that's the platform that I use. I know that I'm like behind the times and should really get on Instagram, but whatever. Um, but that's fine. Yeah. If anyone wants to reach out on Facebook or whatnot, um, that would be completely appropriate. Um, if they want to talk about um, anything that, you know, I've mentioned today, like I said, I'm an open book. I love having conversations with people. Thank you so much for being on here and doing this. And I really feel like we'll probably have you back for another conversation because this was just 
like scratching the surface. I know. I'm like, there, I'm like, I don't know what this is going to be, but there's so many things like yeah. we want to do like specific topics, like talking about like what I actually do in my religious trauma group or like polyamory in my study. Cause that's a whole thing or just, I, you, I know, just what it, you know, you know, for right now, know. like when, when <laughs> I've been researching like what, what's your point of the podcast and things. And they say, you should have your listener, like you envision who your listener is. And my listener is me. I want to put something out there. That's what I would be interested in learning about. And I love people. I love the stories. And so I'm starting sharing the people that I have in my life already that I find fascinating, that I am always excited about having a conversation with, because I think that if people connect, or if that's what they're looking for, that's what they're going to connect with. Right. So Well, I'm very, I'm proud of you for doing this podcast. And thank you. It's a little nerve wracking. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting ready to do like the editing and stuff, but that's, yeah. that is my big hiccup right now is getting into like the detail stuff. I'm, I'm really good at the overview, big picture things, but when it gets yeah. into like the detail stuff is when I start getting, and once I've done a couple, I'll be fine. But yeah, I actually yeah. enjoy editing, but I'm not volunteering to edit your stuff, but <laughs> I'm not asking. No, I think um, it's good for me to do all this right now. And if, if yeah. this is something that I continue and do down the road, there's lots of places and spaces that I can hire people to help do these things. So very true. Very true. Cool. Anyways. Well, thank you. I'm going to get ready to Enjoy go your family. Our movie. Yeah. And Mickey, I said, hi. Celeste says, hi. Hi, Celeste. Hey, Mickey. <laughs> He's literally right there folding laundry, you know. Awesome. Awesome. So. Well, it is really good to see you and thank you for doing this for me. That was Annalisa Parks Murphy and a good friend of mine since high school. And I'm really happy to have had her on today. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us next time for It's a Packed Life. This life is packed.